Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Lucia Pienzo, showrunner of Amazon's first Chilean original drama, La Gioria, and Christian Vespa, executive vice president and creative director of Global Drama at Fremantle, which co-produced the series with local outfit Fabula. Bashir Saludin and Diallo Riddle, co-creators of Sherman's Showcase, talk about their music-themed sketch show's move to AMC and the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement on TV. And Aaron Levitz, head of Wattpad Studios, discusses the trends the Canada-based digital storytelling platform has observed during the COVID-19 pandemic and how its production arm is aiming to tap into these through partnerships. The first Amazon original drama to come out of Chile debuted on the streaming service last month across Latin America and Spain. La Juria, The Pack, comes from brothers Juan de Dios and Pablo Loren and their production company Fabula, which struck a first-look deal with Fremantle last year. The series, which has already been renewed for a second season, is a thriller that sees the members of a female-led gender crime team investigate the disappearance of a schoolgirl and expose a deadly online game that recruits men to commit acts of aggression and abuse against women. Showrunner and director Lucia Puenzo and Christian Vesper, Fremantle's executive vice president and creative director of Global Drama, spoke with Michael Picard about the show and the increasing international appeal of Latin American series. Well, it's been getting tougher now. The you know the focus of the COVID is now in Latin America. There are several countries like Brazil, like Chile, like Peru, who are in the middle of a tragedy and madness. So many dead people and and especially governments that had not made very strict quarantines. So the thing is kind of out of hand. Here in Buenos Aires, it's, it's really much more controlled in a way. On the other hand, we've had a very long quarantine, which I think is kind of the right thing to do, but it's been tough on many people. We are very privileged at home. We have a house, you know, we, we have work, but many people are really having a tough, a tough time. So I think that it's going to be tough to get out of the COVID probably soon, probably by August, we're going to start getting out of winter. And it's been long. It's been long. Yeah. And, and in terms of, I guess, work and, and the industry, have you been able to keep working? Is the TV and, and film business continuing at all? That's why, I mean, I'm completely privileged. I have so much work going on right now. I have many series in development. It's, it's quite privileged to be an author at this time, a script writer, but also in my situation, I have many good projects in my, so I, I keep working with all my teams of, work, of screenwriters, so we are okay. But really the, the cinema industry in Argentina is kind of destroyed right now. Nobody's being able to shoot out there. There are no shootings at all. There's going to be no shootings until September. So my situation is quite... Yeah, I have to. Be, I'm, I'm very grateful, you know, to the where the spot where I'm right now. I mean, and Christian, are, are things? Are you seeing things improve? And and kind of, are, are you having productions sort of, uh, sort of gearing back up to to go back onto set now in Europe and, and anywhere else? In Italy, we should be back in production very soon. Um, we've, we're already back in production in Norway and Denmark and Germany. Uh, we don't have anything set to go into production in France right now. So yeah, I mean, and, and you know, on the entertainment side, I think we'll, we should be back into production relatively soon, hopefully in the UK. So yeah, I think we're just, we're starting to certainly, I mean, the, the UK is, is, is <laughs> I don't know if I should say this on my visa, but it's sort of the laggard, right? In Europe, we're a little <laughs> bit behind everyone, but um, you know, I think it's getting there, hopefully. Yeah. And in the US, we, we hopefully not too far off on getting back into production. Yeah, it's uh, still very up and down over there, isn't it? We'll see, I yeah, guess. It's, uh, a, bit <laughs> it's a bit crazy at home. So. Yeah, but I mean, um, La Jaria, I guess that's all done and dusted. You've, you've, you've sort of 
finished that a while ago so it's yes. when it launches on Amazon there's no problems yes. and it's all good to go yes it is Great. now we're lucky to shoot it last year we finished the editing like eight months ago so it was way out of anything had to do with the COVID. you know the, the the Amazon premiere is, is 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 really exciting and I can't mention any of the other deals we've done but it's going to be launching around the world in a really exciting way uh, Lucia, do you want to just introduce us to the show and, and tell us a bit about the story and, and the characters that we see? La Jauria is main characters are mainly all women, we should say. It's a gender, uh, g- there's a group of three police women who are basi- based on gender crimes. And they begin to work when a young girl, Blanca, disappears in a posh school in, in Chile. And as they start to investigate, they realize that behind that, that disappearance, there is an online game called El Juego del Lobo, the wolf game, which is kind of this games online, which who basically make young men uh, stalk women, mark them, and by the end, abuse them, or these gang rapes that happen. And basically, it's this game that, not, that are not only oriented to, to psychopaths in a way, but also to innocent young boys who basically become somebody who could commit a delictive act, but is not there in the origin. And what we really went out to work with in La Jauria is the, to three, the three police women kind of are not untouched by the, by the game and by everything they get into. Basically, their whole private lives explode and their families explode because those games are in their homes also. And on the other hand, we have this main also protagonist who are the young group of girls who understand that one of them is disappear, has disappeared and also become they make like a parallel investigation online because many of them are hackers. And so they began to investigate what's going on. And they also reach like the darkest spot of what the game becomes. And I mean, just tell us a bit about um, your involvement in the show. At what stage did you come on? And, and, and as the showrunner, how did you kind of um, steer the story and, and sort of take it into production? Fabula and Fremantle called me quite early in the stage. And it, the starting point was there. It was this crime. The three policewomen were there. In a way, La Jauria was kind of ahead of its time because we wrote it two years ago when the feminist movement was just beginning to show its head. You know, it, it was a deep movement in Latin America. It was just getting the streets with very young women who were basically in very creative way making themselves heard. And very soon enough, women of all, of all ages and then men of all ages were in the streets with them. And it became, I think, one of the huge themes of the last two years. But we were writing it at the same time as it was happening. So the dialogue with the... With, with reality was incredible. I've never written a show that was so much in dialogue with everything that was happening. So we were like feeding from each other, you know, in a very incredible way. So, and I think that everything that appears in the series is basically what has happened in Latin America in the last two years, how young women have, have been heard, how the word abused has been redefined, I think in Latin America, but also in the whole world. Many things that weren't considered abuse, at least in Latin America, are now considered abuse. And basically, those are the main themes of La Jauria. So it was quite incredible how it was speaking with its time. And Christian, um, I guess, you know, Fremantle and this new partnership that you have with Fabula um, is kind of the foundation of, of the series and, and how, did, how it started. Can you tell us a bit about that partnership and how it was forged and, and you know, maybe what it speaks to Fremantle's scope for, for growth around Latin America? Yeah, I mean, I think that La Jaria was definitely central, has been central to, to, you know, creating our relationship with Fabula. When we were starting to put the Fabula relationship together, I had actually met with Lucia in, in Buenos Aires just because we wanted to work with Lucia as well. So it was kind of a nice 
way to 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 get involved with both Fabula and Lucia at the same time. You know, in terms of Fremantle and Fabula, it is, you know, we are very much see ourselves as as a leader in terms of producing and distributing and supporting drama in any language. And and I would say we were probably amongst our competitors the leader in in finding great platforms for foreign language drama and in the U.S. and in Europe in ways that I think is still despite the fact that the streamers you know have a fair amount of it on 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 their platforms we have been able to really set these projects up as well at linear networks and cable networks and so it was becoming clear that one area where we were not really working so much in terms of we were selling to but not producing was Latin America and it's such a big market such an important market and you know uh, I I was lucky enough to to be able to to really be at the front end of that on the drama side for the company with um with one of my colleagues Sheila Aguirre and who's based in Miami and uh for me personally just I had been wanting to work with uh Pablo and and Juan Pablo Lorraine and Juan de Dios for years when I was at my previous network um we had developed together and so it just became frankly a bit of an obsession to work with Fabula because I think they're uh amongst the very best uh around both in Latin America and globally and you know Pablo is one of I think the world's the auteur filmmakers right now. And what, what what's fantastic about Fabula as a partner is their relationships with other auteurs in Latin America, like Lucia and, and other, you know, really people, writers and directors with real vision. That's what travels, I think. And, and that's, I guess, evidenced by the fact that Amazon have picked it up and it's become one of their sort of first Latin American originals. Can you tell us a bit about that deal and and how that kind of came about in terms of um, Amazon, I guess, obviously pushing into to that region and then you having the product there that they obviously wanted? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we had a lot of a lot of interest in, in the project. People want to work with Lucia I and mean, she's worked with a lot of the big platforms already in Latin America. People want to work with Pablo and Juan de Dios. And I think, as Lucia said, this project was so timely especially for Latin America, I think for the world, really. And, you know, we wanted to make sure that everyone in, in, in town saw it and had an opportunity and, and everyone in town saw it and, and I think was excited, excited about it. I mean, and it's a terrific project for Amazon to, to, to start making their mark in Latin America. As, as, as someone, just a viewer, it operates on so many different levels. You know, it's thriller, but it also has really big ideas. And, and Lucia, how did you you know, want to dramatize some of the themes and the issues that um, you, you mentioned at the start that makes it so topical. How did you do that? And and um, and why do you think that then speaks to an international audience, not just a, a Chilean mm-hmm. or a Latin American audience? You know, even as, as Christian says, it's a, it's a tense thriller, La Jauria, but it's basically character driven, much more than plot driven. In a way, this is a series about characters which I love. It's basically the kind of series that I like. And really, as Christian just said, Faula is a, a, a company that works with directors and they let us write freely, very freely. And, and Fremont are also their incredible creative partners. And, and in that way, the, the, the group of authors, we could work with a lot of freedom and, and we all love a series that work with well-built characters. And because you work with well-built characters, it can even be digressive because you can show, you know, run after them and you are intrigued by them. So in a way, that's for me basically what happens with La Jauria. The characters are complex. They're really complex in a way. Many of them are amoral, but in the same way, you walk hand in hand with them, which I think is very interesting. They are contradictory in in interesting ways. So we worked a lot, you know, something that I think that basically in projects that are 
that have a lot of women involved right now, you have to be very careful with the men characters because there is like a danger to to fall in stereotypes with men characters when many women are involved, at least in the, these days. And, you know, not to make them too simple or the villains or the, uh, there's like a work in La Jauria that I think has very interesting also men characters. And I think that that combination uh, made us uh, very juicy when we wrote the plots, you know, there was something that the characters were very alive. My, my feeling is with certain materials that they are alive, you know, that there is something that, that vibrates in them. And I had that feeling all, all along when we were shooting La Jauria. And when you were, you know, in the writer's room or, or working with the other writers, I mean, how did you try and keep the story, I guess, ahead of the news or kind of running parallel to the news? Obviously, you didn't want it to be too topical because then it might seem old when it finally aired. Absolutely. So how did you Absolutely. try and stay ahead of the curve? It kind of grasped us, the story. Sometimes, you know, there are characters who make whatever they want with you. And in a way, that's what happened with La Jauria, basically, especially with the young girls. You know, the young girls were not the main characters in the story and they kind of won their their space and then not only in the writing when we went into a shooting the cast of La Jauria is completely amazing and basically all, all the young actresses and actors of La Jauria are incredible so they kind of won their their protagonism you know they won this, their space in the books first in the shooting then in the editing room afterwards and they became just as important as the police characters so I really like that of La Jauria how certain things got out of the equation you know they weren't supposed to be main characters and they became main characters and and I, I like when that happens you know those unexpected things that happen sometimes right. I mean can, can you tell us um just a bit about you know the writing process and and I guess how you work as a writer director a showrunner on a, on a project like this do you do you have a particular method or is it very I guess on the project it's following the project for two years it, yeah it's basically just as much love and passion as I have with my films also you know it's following the writing writers room are basically eight months and then it's like a year for pre-production and shooting we had a very good team of Argentinian and Chilean authors. We worked together, the four of us, like a scrum for eight months. <laughs> we wrote together the books, actually. We made you know, the first draft and the last draft with my Argentine partner, and the Chileans were an amazing couple of, of authors who also wrote the other drafts. So we worked hand in hand, the four of us. And then we had an incredible te technical team with of all Chileans. M me and my brother, Nico Puenzo, who is the other director of DOP, were the only Argentinians on board. We were very well received. We took uh, many friends out of, of this, yeah. uh, of La Jauria. And, and it was an incredible experience because it was, you know, a series that we shot in 11 weeks. So it was really a run for it. And, and everything worked as it had to because it was a difficult shooting we had many teenagers we had children we had very difficult scenes all along we rehearsed quite a lot I, I have difficult different methods for adults and for teenagers or young adults or children you know with with adults I like to read a lot the scenes and rehearse but with with teenagers or young adults or children basically I do a lot of knowing each other a lot of trust because basically the most important with with them is that they trust you and you trust them and you know there's something bond there we made a lot of physical exercise. We didn't rehearse any scene that was kind of the sex scenes or whatever. I, I don't like to rehearse those scenes. I think it's better not to rehearse them, basically. But we did uh, read a lot of the scenes altogether. We were able to read from the first to the last uh, script before the shooting, which was something really good. We were done. It was very organized in that way. We were done with our eight books. You know, that's a very different way of shooting the Latin American series and the 
US or European series that is the open shooting. You know, we don't shoot episode to episode, but everything is open. So many, maybe in one day you're making scenes of episode one to episode eight. So when you're shooting in that way, there has to be a lot of pre-production to really understand the art, not only me as the director, but everybody has to understand where you are. So that was kind of a lot of work in the pre-production, you know, to understand, to be prepared for a shooting that would have the eight episodes open in the table in one Sunday. And then and I guess for, for both of you, I mean, what were the challenges that you had in terms of bringing the show to air? Was it in, you know, building that financing and, and getting that production base set up? Or was it in the writing or, you know, the actual filming of the show? What were kind of some of the things that kept you awake at night? When I brought it back to Fremantle, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, everyone just said, yes, great. Which doesn't happen every time, but it, people got it. And I think that, you know, it was a good story to tell. And honestly, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, I think we were all intrigued by, by getting to do this show in Latin America. So that, that wasn't hard, to be perfectly honest. You know, getting it to the screen is always hard. And I think that um, even though we had a lot of interest in it from various different partners, you want to go with a partner that is going to appreciate it and take care of it and understand it. And and Amazon, again, is is the Latin American and Spanish partner. And it was really great to, to, to do this with them because they were excited about it and passionate about, about it. I was down in Chile for a scene that Lucia's brother, Nicola, was yeah. directing and as an Ameri- as someone again who's made shows in America, it was astonishing because he managed to shoot a chase scene on a runway involving an airplane, a truck, and a car and cops. Oh. And literally, that was just the first scene of the day. They set it up, shot it, and still made it back to Santiago to shoot some interiors. It was really amazing. <laughs> it did. We did eight to ten minutes a day every day it, in in amount of material, which is something maybe in a U.S. series you make two minutes a day. So yeah. it's really. The amount of minutes you should, uh, you know, in eight hours, it's incredible. And you have at the same time to have the level of any yeah. international show. So that's a difficult part of the equation, but it's fun. Also, you know, it's fun. And, and just, I mean, how would you say is Lajaria um, a good example, I guess, of the series coming out of Latin America and Chile and Argentina at the moment? And, and you know, are we going to see more of these on the international marketplace, do you think, over the, the next few months and, and years? I know Walter Presents in the UK has, has picked up a few Brazilian series and, and obviously with Netflix and Amazon obviously picking up a lot of material. There's um, a good chance we'll be seeing some new series from the region very soon, do you think? No, I do. I do. I think that something very strong is happening in Latin America. And, you know, there are a lot of crossings of, of series like La Jauria done with directors of one country and cast of another country. There is something very interesting in the mix of different countries of Latin America doing series together. I think you'll be seeing a lot more from Fabula and, and Fremantle and Lucia. I, I think that there's, you know, the, the, the creativity is, is, is running high right now. And what, what's great is it's a different take and yet the cultural affinities are close enough that it's it's a different take on familiar subjects sometimes, or it's just different ways of seeing seeing things. And yet, yet culturally, there's still enough connection. I think that once these shows start to be seen in Europe and the U.S., they'll they'll be exciting for everybody. Lucia Puenzo and Christian Vesper. Sherman's Showcase is a sketch show based largely around music, with original songs and John Legend among its executive producers. Created by Bashir Saladin and Diallo Riddle, a duo who started out in an LA-based comedy troupe and ended up working on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, Sherman's Showcase debuted last year with a six-episode run on US cable net IFC, followed by a Black History Month special, and then made the jump to AMC for a second season. 
Saladin and Riddle spoke to Clive Whittingham about making that transition, their hopes for taking the show global, and the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement on TV. Hey, this is Bashir uh, of uh, Sherman's Showcase. I play Sherman. You know, Dial and I actually got our start as writers in sketch comedy. We had a sketch comedy troupe uh, for years in Los Angeles, featuring people who are still, you know, making really great comedy today. We feel really lucky that even many years ago when we started a sketch comedy troupe, you know, we had such great folks around us. That continued to the point where we ended up working for Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. We actually wrote some of Jimmy's uh, biggest hits. You know, we were there for four years at 30 Rock, you know, working with Jimmy, working with Lauren Michaels and all those people and really just continuing to, to strengthen ourselves. So Sherman Showcase to us is a show that has been in our hearts and minds for about a decade. You know, it's a labor of love for us and it's unlike anything else on the dial. You said the show's kind of 10 years in the making. Was it was it difficult mm -hmm. to to get it away with a with a broadcaster? Was it pitched in 101 different places? We took it to one place. We took it to the first place that we took it to IFC, which had just done a season of documentary now where they did an entire episode about talking heads and the documentary stopped making sense. And uh, I, I literally called Bashir. I was like, you know, if they can do half an hour about something as relatively obscure as Stop Making Sense, then we, we can definitely do a show about black music there. I mean, like this show is definitely our love letter to black music. I think it was uh, Ahmet Erdogan of, of uh, Atlantic Music that was like, music has been made all over the planet, but for whatever reason, and we can all postulate reasons why, but for whatever reason, black music is the music that has spread all across the globe, whether that's international dance music, hip hop, soul, rock and roll, all flowing out of the uh, the, the the black tradition. And 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 I mean it when I say that it's a love letter to to black music. You know, when we started putting this show together, one of the first things Bashir actually said was, you know, we hope it it, it finds an international audience because yeah. music is the international language. And in our view, you don't even have to get all of the jokes. Uh, all the TV shows and movies that we're referencing to appreciate Sherman Showcase. It, it really does speak that international language of music. So when we went into it, we knew right off the bat, we want to have a dance hall song. We want to have mm -hmm. a house music song. We want to have yep. hip hop. We want to have R&B. Like we want to have all these genres that have already gone all out through the world and, um, and, and won. But on top of that, we have the humor. We have the uh, lightness of knowing that what we're doing is trying to bring you know, happiness, joy, and laughter into people's homes. So, you know, it was always important to us that the show find an international audience. What particularly worked in season one or what learnings have you taken from it? Because you, you've got your second season commissioned yep. now. But It sort of goes to your, your question about pitching it in some degree. Like, as people who create content, we have to be the most sure about what we're doing. Because when you deal with any network or any broadcaster, they're going to have questions, they're going to have notes. But and, that's, and sometimes that stuff is additive, but at the end of the day, you as a creator have to really know what you're doing. And that's sort of where our, you know, decades of experience comes to bear with Sherman Showcase, that we really knew what we were doing. We really only took it to one place that um, we thought would do it, and we were right about that. And when we made the show, they gave us notes, but they would often say, just do what you want to do. Specifically, to answer your question, I mean, what we learned is that if you build it, they will come. So I do think in season one, you know, we did learn that, you know, trusting our instincts was good. We have this really great director, Matt Piedmont, who's done things like everything all the way back to Brick Snowbacks to Casa de Mi Padre from Will Ferrell to, you know, just so many great things to, to, to Spoils of Babylon. Um, and him, he and his team created an aesthetic specificity 
that makes the show so much more resonant and so much more findable and distinguishable from other TV shows. And so, again, I think, you know, and yeah, I'm sure you have your own answers, but for me, in season one, I just felt like we really learned that the things that we thought would work would work and that we really just have only begun to scratch the surface of the type of music we want to make. Yeah, uh, the things that we learned in the process, for me, what I learned is that as weird and as quirky as the show is, people got it. You know, they they got it yeah. more than we thought. It was a tough sell, not in terms of selling it to a network, but selling it to people. Because, yes, it, it, it is a sketch show, but we don't suddenly have just like, you know, exterior a house and then, you know, there's a character who stutters. Like, that's not the kind of sketch yeah. show we are. It doesn't have the tightest through line narrative that will get people to tune in week to week to week. It really is this uh, very bizarre show, but we feel like almost like Pee-wee's Big Adventure, some of the more quirky things that have come along, the Eric Andre show comes to mind, you know, people bought into it. And I think that because they bought into that first season, we feel empowered not to get more weird, but to build on the universe we've created. We always said that mm -hmm. Sherman Showcase is almost like our own little Marvel Cinematic Universe of Black music. So. Yeah. We can expand on the characters that we've shown in season one, and we can also create brand new characters that exist within Sherman's bizarre Alta universe. And also we've learned like what kind of material, like there's some uh, sketches and bits that really work because the performer in it is just outstanding. Bashir is always fantastic to watch. There's a guy named Rob Hayes. He played the young Morris Day in the regular season. And then in our Black History Month special, he uh, played Terrence Howard renegotiating his contract for Iron Man 2, which is a classic moment in, in, in Black cinematic history. So I feel like there's some that work because the performers, and then there's some that are just conceptually so fun and weird and offbeat that, you know, that's another type of, of area that we get to go in. So we're just, you know, we're thankfully, we have the creative freedom to make something that's bizarre and weird and that people seem to respond to. Does the ambition uh, change with it moving on to, to AMC? Do you, does it get bigger? One thing that Bashir and I love to say is that, like, let's go big. You know, I think the fact yeah. that we're on a bigger network with a, yeah. with a larger international footprint, like, expect, you know, bigger, bolder, <laughs> wilder decisions in the creative process. Even, even from a song point of view, I, I want to do bigger. I mean, like, we often were writing music as we were going into pre-production. And I think sometimes that's sort of like, there's the deadline is now, we got to get it done. Like sometimes that leads to like the best possible creative decisions. But I, mm -hmm. I am like relishing the idea of using this COVID period to talk to Bashir and talk to some of our favorite writers about song ideas that they have now so that we can have fully fleshed out musicals. And, and, you know, we had a musical the first season, but like we can really build out every song into a three minute opus, you know, every musical into yeah. a five X structure. Uh, use this time to make everything more robust and, like I said, big. We've had a lot of chat over here and written features about how comedy has changed on our main channels. All used to have amazing sitcoms that, you know, you could just reel off the names of the classic sitcoms and they'd have Thursday night, comedy night. They'd all have their own sketch show. And then it's kind of all dissipated onto specific comedy channels and disappeared off the mm. main channels. And one of the reasons mm. it's been given for sketch shows maybe not landing as they used to here 
um, is that they just get cut up and put on YouTube. People will just watch the sketches they like on YouTube and ignore the ones yeah. they don't. It kind of ruins the idea of a half an hour sketch show. I get the impression that's not really the same in the US. Maybe that's due to the late night shows, which are all built around sketch. But can you just talk a little bit to that? I know it's not really a question. I'm just, I'm interested. No, it's, it's, it's something we discuss a lot. You know, even, even the wonderfully uh, classic Chappelle show, people forget it came on the air before YouTube. People were able to share on like weird little sites like Ebom's World, and uh, you know there there were sites where you could share stuff, but there was no YouTube, and even as late as Dave Chappelle. So yes, I feel like sketch comedy, as far as like a lights up, lights down endeavor, is not as interesting anymore because you know there's so much sketch comedy that gets made on YouTube, and you're you know. But I think that's another reason why shows like ours, shows like a Black Lady Sketch Show from HBO, um, I feel like in some ways because it's been so democratized and sort of like diluted by the amount of just pure sketch comedy on, on YouTube, that it, it becomes imperative that you give people more than just a sketch show. Like in, in some ways, sketch shows have to be reinvented. And I think that the conceit of our show, which is that you're watching clips from a show that came out, started in 1972 and has continued to this day, we mm -hmm. feel like we give people enough extra stuff enough of a concept that uh, it it actually becomes more than just a, a, a typical sketch show with everything that's going on at the moment here and in the u.s lots of talk about representation diversity on screen is is this show mm -hmm. actually even though it's been on a while is this actually quite a, a timely show it's accidentally timely i mean like you know we we write it from the point of view of two guys who grew up in very large black families like you know these are in some ways these are topics that would always come up around the dinner table and we just always try to figure out like, well, what's, you know, what's our funny angle? And, you know, for example, we wrote uh, the uh, house song, the dance song, Add Some Kente last October. And in that video, not only are we wearing kente cloth, but, you know, my character has on a gas mask because that was my version of like the Daft Punk DJ helmet. So once again, like pulling from all different kinds of things. And then lo and behold, when we came out with that song, there was this whole thing in the United States where our politicians were wearing kente cloth to show their support. And of course, everybody's, you know, half of the country's wearing masks. And people were like, did you guys shoot this video last week? And we're like, no, we wrote it in October. We shot it in January. I think that, you know, if our show seems timely, it's just because people are now starting to discuss and in some ways, you know, discover, you know, topics that have previously only been discussed in minority communities. And I think it's a good thing that people are having those conversations. And I'm excited that our show gets to be a part of the conversation because we have so many diverse, you know, we have a lot of diverse perspectives even in doing this show because not only do we have black and white writers, but we also have, we, we have a large contingency of LGBT people who work on the show. Uh, our show has dance as a very important part of the show. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the dance community has always been very inclusive and welcoming to people from all types of, of genders and, and uh, sexuality. Well, not, so. not, not the uncoordinated. <laughs> but it's also people have kind of come around to stuff that Bial and I have been talking about, you know, for, for years. I mean, we've always felt as, as creators like we we're a little bit ahead of the curve. Like, even, for example, one of the best shows in American television is Donald Glover's Atlanta. Um, when we were friends with Donald, you know, Bial was born and raised in Atlanta. And we actually had a show in 2012 at HBO that, that didn't go forward or went forward and then went backwards that was based in Atlanta. And so for us, you know, to see Atlanta do so well, we were like, yeah, great. You know, we were definitely on the right page in the right area. Yeah, we had to do a lot of convincing. Like yeah. when we first yeah, yeah, yeah. went to them with a show based in Atlanta, you know, and this is like obviously again, like two, three years before Donald's version, you know, mm -hmm. we would get questions like, 
was Atlanta really like that? And um, yeah. does the city really have all black malls? And, and they yeah. even would like, you know, we would try and tell them there's this whole thing about strip club culture in Atlanta where like DJs at a strip club will get paid thousands of dollars to yep. play a demo or a rapper's song because they know that big time rappers like a Young Jeezy or a T.I., are there in the club. So the DJs at these strip clubs have the ability to make or break careers. And we wrote a yep. whole episode about it and we were getting so much pushback because they could not take our word that that was a thing and that that was a yep. subculture that was out there. And it was only ironically when GQ published an article about Atlanta strip clubs that they're like, oh, so we're we're cool now. We, we understand, like, you know, that's the thing that we kind of had to deal with before and I suspect we'll still have to deal with it to some extent, but, but I, I, thankfully the conversation that's taking place in our country and in your country and around the world right now, hopefully we won't have to have that conversation so long because we could have had that show on the year in 2012. Is television getting better at that? I mean, you know, is it moving in the right direction? I think TV moves in waves. I think that, you know, for example, like, and I know that he is obviously somebody who is serving time for a crime right now, but Bill Cosby. The Cosby Show, I actually thought when that show came out, people I don't think people really realized how revolutionary that show was because you had these two upperly mobile, you know, really loving parents of a big black family in a black part of town. And it was nothing. And I mean, nothing like anything that had come before it, right? And so for us, who grew up watching shows like that, and then the shows that came after, right, like A Different World and even Your Family Matters, like specific and different black content, and then it kind of all went away. And then now it's coming back again. So, so... Shows typically come and go in waves. My sincere and sober hope is that these shows do provide a gateway that other shows like this can stay longer. But historically speaking, it ha there has been an ebb and flow. So we'll see what kind of cycle we're in. But definitely, I think now more than any time in history, we're teed up for this current wave to, to really last for a very long time. Bashir Saladin and Diallo Riddle, co-creators of Sherman's Showcase. Canada-based digital storytelling platform Wattpad offers writers a forum to showcase their work, some of which has progressed into film and TV. Aaron Levitz, head of Wattpad Studios, spoke with Carolyn Kaminska about the trends the firm has observed during the COVID-19 pandemic and how the development and production arm is aiming to tap into these through partnerships. I think we can all say that it's a, a, a new world out there and it's really had differing effects on different parts of of the Wattpad business. So let's talk about Wattpad as a platform, you know, a platform with in January 80 million plus users around the world coming to read, write and tell their stories. And in a moment, uh, you know, in March as the world started to lock down everywhere, we really saw an unprecedented time where people were looking for catharsis through creativity, where people wanted a community because they didn't necessarily have one uh, at their front door anymore. And we saw a, a huge influx on the platform. When COVID-19 lockdowns really started, we saw about 50% increase in signups and over 200% increase in writing activity. And that just speaks to people, even though they're apart, finding a true community on Wattpad. And, and it's that community, that audience, and the, the things that we can learn about what they fall in love with on the platform that really drives you know, Wattpad Studios and, and what Wattpad Studios is doing. So from a platform standpoint, it was really interesting to see that we can provide that escapism, that we can provide that catharsis for people. And of course, the studio, you know, which I mean, we were in both publishing and entertainment, was affected as a lot of uh, studios were around the world. But it had a really brilliant moment for us realizing that the whole world had time to do development. People were reading, you know, all those cast members who are always saying, oh, I want to find my next project. I want to read my next project. But they're on set every day, no longer to be on set. 
producers, directors all over the world. And, you know, we have 500 million story uploads to the platform of all time in 50 plus languages around the world. And, you know, ourselves were developing in uh, 10 different languages with 15 different partners. And, and those are kind of big partnerships around the world. We were able to really see those changes in how our studio partners are working around the world, knowing the production wasn't happening and serve them, you know, compelling stories that were being created some of our biggest stories of all time. And then the new ones that we're seeing created during, you know, the time of COVID. So it has really been, you know, an unprecedented time to say the least, but it's really been interesting as a business operating it to see how that impact continues to shift, how we all have to think about businesses and how communities form around the world to make sure we're still connected as, as, as a global community. So you've benefited from increased signups and activity, which is good. What other trends have you seen amongst Wattpad's users over the last few months? I think one thing that was really, uh, you know, obviously one thing we can really look at is how our users are imbibing content, how they're, you know, following stories, new stories, old stories. Um, And the one thing that we did see is that, you know, people who love romance read more romance. People who love sci-fi love uh, read more sci-fi so we're really we're seeing those genre trends remain consistent we saw our biggest stories things like she's with me get even bigger because those people who had always meant to read it came to read it when they didn't have time before and those who loved it reread it so our biggest stories got bigger but we were seeing you know interesting new genres pop up that didn't exist you know uh beth Rickles, uh, who wrote the kissing booth i think Kissing Booth 2 trailer just dropped because it's coming out on Netflix shortly. She started writing quarantine romance on Wattpad called Lockdown on London Lane. That is a really amazing story. And of course, you know, people are interested in seeing like what is romance in in the time of of quarantine. But it's more than just, you know, our existing writers who started writing and our superstars are writing. We had people from off-platform. We had, you know, kind of an international pop star in in actress Pia Mia come onto the platform uh, over COVID uh, and recently start writing... Uh, the first chapters of her book, The Princess Diaries, on Wattpad as well. So I think, again, it was just a moment where people really had to think about what was going to entertain them, what was going to get them through this, and whether it was writing like Beth or Pia Mia, or whether whether it was reading your biggest and favorite stories like Given or Juniper Jones, uh, The Invisible Summer of Juniper Jones, Wattpad really was showing that we have a story for everyone in the world to enjoy and fall in love with. And how do you think that the current crisis might shape content development and demand going forward? Well, I mean, one of the things that we do at Wattpad Studios is is really change how we think about the model for finding content and developing content. And that comes from the fact that with 80 million plus users around the world, we have a phenomenal amount of understanding and data-backed insights of the stories that we want to develop and that our partners want to develop with us. And what that lets us do is create a better chance of success. It gives us built-in audiences who we know will, you know, leave Wattpad to go to screens everywhere. And whether it's examples like Light as a Feather that uh, ran on Hulu and is running uh, on HBO in some international countries, whether it's, you know, After, which, you know, we released last year into theaters on April 12th and was one of the top indie movies of the year, we know that our audience and the data they create are being more and more predictive of success. And I think we are seeing that 
two things have happened in COVID. One, new content came to a standstill, and you're starting to see that on streamers, that there's less and less new releases as production is shut down. And that means more content will need to be made at an even faster rate. Add on top of that, that there are more streamers in the market, new players. Uh, you know, We've seen the start of definitely the North American-centric and global-centric uh, streaming wars, but you know, there's much more to happen in the international markets as local and pan-regional streamers come online, that there'll be a need for more content and a faster speed than ever to bring it to screens. And that really sets Wattpad Studios apart because we can rely on the data that we have uh, to help our partners work with built-in audiences throughout the process, finding IP throughout development and even into marketing where we can market back to those audiences to reduce some of the risk that is going to come with producing that much content that quickly. And I think that's one of the big changes we're going to see. The changes we're seeing of the growth of streamers, of the speed of content, the amount of investment in content had already started and been going on for five, 10 years, but definitely the pandemic uh, has accelerated the move from sometimes traditional viewing methodologies to the newer ones that we're, we're all seeing right now. Can you talk about the recent TV development deals Wattpad has struck, such as with Screen Queensland in Australia, and how they are progressing? For sure, yeah. Screen Queensland, uh, I think we announced just a, a couple of weeks ago now, uh, really a first, our first of, a, of its kind deal for Wattpad in Australia. And, you know, we set it to really find amazing stories uh, within Australia and work with some of the amazing creative talent there to create uh, huge stories uh, that are coming out of Australia with both a local and a global view. And that's something we do really well. In fact, some of our biggest writers are, are from Australia. Exceptionally exciting for us, uh, as, as I said, it's it's a first. We've announced uh, some of our work around our development fund uh, a little uh, earlier before that, where we decided that for some of our stories uh, that are still available after you know working with some of our partners, that we want to be able to invest in them, that we want to be able to take you know those unique and diverse voices and, and make sure there is representation on big screens by investing in the development process. And that lets us bet on our own data. It lets us invest where we see audiences. And we're doing that by working with some of the best writers in the industry. You know, we're, we're working with David Arata for or, um, What Happened That Night, which is a story from Wattpad by Deanna Cameron. And you know, he was Oscar nominated for Children of Men. So that was a really exciting moment for us to be able to invest in our own data. Uh, and you know, again, we've created this network of amazing international partners around the world so we can find local stories that have global importance. And we want to continue to develop great stories with Bavaria Fiction in Germany. Uh, we're going to see great stories coming from France and, and our partnership with Lagardère. But all to say is, you know, we really do see that Wattpad does have stories that deserve to be everywhere in the world and will just continue to grow that network of great partners that we have. TV lends itself to the platform so well. Um, you know, our stories often come as serialized stories. So our writers are thinking about each chapter having its own arcs. Uh, having its own character development. And so we do see a lot of our content really lends itself towards TV. Okay. And what trends do you expect to see in the digital content world over the next year? I would kind of concentrate around two really big pieces that you know we have to figure out, maybe even three. I think first is the streaming platforms. I think over the next year, even, we're going to start seeing winners and losers in that in that space. You know, when people like Tencent are acquiring companies like iFlix, uh, when we, you know, see where 
Peacock lands and Quibi lands and Netflix lands and Disney Plus lands and HBO Max, there is going to be a fallout and a shapeshift in that industry. Um, there's still local players that are, are still coming online. So all to say is I think we're going to see that landscape change and begin to start to solidify, I'd say, you know, there'll be years of solidification and, and both breakthrough and folding that will happen. But I think that's something that is keenly on my mind. And, and I know the minds of my entire team as we, you know, pitch stories to some of our biggest partners around the world. I guess at the same time, we can't overlook the effect that COVID will have on the movie experience and theatrical windowing and what stories now can go direct to VOD at home when you see some of the early successes of, of things like Troll and the King of Staten Island. Where does that leave theaters when they open up? And, you know, we do believe there is a theater experience that's there, but you better make sure you have fans that are there and a fandom built to go to that theater and, and you know, put money down at the box office when they do open up. And look, I think one of the things that we will have to see is how is all this content going to get made? What does it mean to turn cameras back on? You know, we're seeing regions all around the world that are up and ready to film, but still that's going to be figured out. And I think it's going to depend on making sure that when we do turn cameras on, that there are people who are going to show up to watch those shows. You know, there, there has to be less risk in the industry because producing content is going to be more expensive for the foreseeable future. And I think all those things come together to say that the next year is going to be uh, an incredibly interesting one to to be able to have a front seat to uh, as, as the changes and fallout of, of what we've experienced over the last few months continues. Aaron Levitt, head of Wattpad Studios. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>